So it's really important, I think, to do more than just explain the text in terms of its ancient meaning, but what's its significance for us today. And I'm on the roll. It's watering time, everybody! It's time for Apollos Watered! A podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. A deep conversation with Old Testament scholar Trimper Longman III. This is actually the second part of our conversation. While we do talk a bit more about the translations of the Bible and the New Living Translation, we go further. We delve into some of Tremper's work as well as his influences in the Old Testament, and he brings it out for us and why we need to study it today. Honestly, we talked about a ton of different topics. We talked about the imprecatory and layman psalms, how to nourish our souls, what God thinks about sex, education in the pulpit, C.S. Lewis, and some of Tremper's friends like Kevin Van Hooser, Tim Keller, and Dan Allender. This is a varied, fun, and really insightful conversation, one that is encouraging and helpful as we seek to water our worlds where we are. One of the goals of Apollos Watered is to introduce you to some of the best thinkers and voices of the faith today from around the world. These are those individuals who really know their stuff, and they're the ones that other people quote, that they look to, that they go to. These are men and women that have studied and given their lives to know Christ and to make him known all over the world. And it's their works that help us to get to know God better, to know and study his word, and how to live our faith out in the world today. Tremper is one of those guys. Honestly, it's very rare that you get a chance to talk to someone of his caliber and influence. But we get that opportunity today. It's a conversation that spans a great deal of issues, but is sure to be a blessing to you to help you water your world where you are. Happy listening. Going beyond just the translation part of it, because I, I mean, translation is huge. It's huge. And we, we advocate for not just more, I mean, English translations, because language is changing all the time, but we want to see the, the word of God translated in all languages. And it's yeah. still sad to me to see while we have so many English translations and, and other cultures don't we want to see the word of God go into those cultures. But I also want to see not just an argument over translation philosophy, but application. Mm -hmm. And I, I find that that's more of the issue today. I mean, yes, translation's huge, because if you don't get translation right, you can veer off the road very, very quickly in pursuing one odd, very minor or uh, a theological point and make it into a major. Mm -hmm. How do we then stay along the road and really help people to just simply apply the word of God? Well, I mean, one of the ways that Christian leaders can do that is through preaching and and making our preaching and teaching more than just uh, content, information, historical background, but helping people to understand how it impacts our lives and our culture. So 
in my view, in my position, I've helped develop a commentary series called the Story of God Commentary Series, which uh, takes the Bible and and discusses each passage in three headings. One is sort of uh, listen to the text, which talks in terms of the Old Testament about how the Old Testament, uh, how other Old Testament texts, maybe ancient or Eastern texts reverberate within this particular text. Then the next is explain the story, which is to do a kind of interpretation within its original setting. And then it's a live the story, which is how now does this passage impact our corporate and individual lives today as Christians in the 21st century. So, so it's really important, I think, to do more than just explain the text in terms of its ancient meaning, but what's its significance for us today? Um, that, that's the bigger question. Yeah, right. So out of all the, this, the things that you've written on, what's your favorite area that you really just enjoy delving into and, and writing about? Well, I, I have a lot of, maybe that's why I've written so many different types of books. I have a lot of different. Yeah, you have, it's pretty varied. But I mean, I love writing on wisdom literature. Um, I uh, just finished this commentary on Revelation, and that was a blast to write. It was in a, it's in a series called The New Testament Through Old Testament Eyes. Mm. I'm writing a book now on, uh, you know, literary theory and interpreting the Old Testament. Um, and as part of a trilogy, on the Old Testament as literature, the Old Testament as history, and the Old Testament as theology. Uh, I love writing. My friend Dan Allender and I have written a series of books on, uh, which actually is illustrating our earlier point. You know, we'll we'll write a book that uh, interfaces with my work as an Old Testament scholar and his work as a counselor. So, for instance, we wrote a book called Cry of the Soul, which talks about the lament psalms and how it should shape our emotions in relationship to God or intimate allies about the book of Genesis 1 through 3 and marriage and God loves sex. That's probably our more, most recent book. Which Let's is, talk about that. <laughs> God loves sex. I figured you'd pick up on that. <laughs> well, I mean... I, I try to tell my children, I heard this years ago, that they're the product of their parents' red-hot monogamy. Yeah. Um, and and I think, I just think that's also something that Christians don't talk about. I mean, yes, there's yeah. a lot of movement toward that, because you always look at the pendulum. You know, what, yeah, what's yeah, being taught yeah. one time, yeah. and you'll see the corrective, and it goes the opposite way, where it's too far the other way. And, yeah. and yeah. we always try to be a, as a corrective. Yeah. Um, and that's why we've even had on the show, we had Nancy Piercy, we had Tim Tennant, we had Sam Alberry, And all of them were talking about a theology of the body, mm -hmm. uh, something yeah. that we as, as evangelicals have lost really, or not really addressed. We, we, we've been behind Roman Catholics in that regard, uh, because they've written a lot on a theology of the body and the need for the body. So what made you guys want to write that book? <laughs> that's a good question. And I think a lot of different reasons. I remember uh, we, our first book was called um, uh, 
Well, actually, our first book was called Bold Love, but I'm thinking Cry of the Soul, which, as I said, is about the lament psalms and Mm -hmm. how the lament psalms are there when we're really going through difficulty. And so uh, it just so happened in the two years we were writing it, both of us experienced great difficulty in various areas of our life. And we figured God was saying to us, um, don't write this book. No, he was saying, no, he was saying, well, I think he was saying, if you write this book, you're going to experience what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So then, then we decided to write books like God loves sex instead. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, or intimate. Animals. <laughs> I just got that. <laughs> I'm a little slow in the uptake there. It took me a second. Oh, no, but, but another reason why is because uh, we do think, as you say, that uh, Christians struggle with understanding that, you know, sexuality within the context of marriage is God's good gift to us because all of us, because of sin, experience pain in that area. And yeah. so sometimes we just think that somehow sex is a negative thing inherently <laughs> forgetting that you know sexuality was a pre-fall reality you know they were in the garden naked and feeling no shame and also i just uh, you know i'd written a commentary on the song of songs and uh, and dan does a lot of work in the area of sexuality and marriage as a counselor um and so we decided we'd uh, write a book together. And it followed another book we wrote that has the same kind of format on Ecclesiastes, which we call our midlife crisis book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's because uh, I had written a commentary on Ecclesiastes. And so that book is called, actually, it was originally called Bold Purpose. Uh, and mm. they were trying to, our book Bold Love sold so well, they were trying to kind of piggyback on that title. But uh, I said we should have named it Purpose Driven Life, but no. (laughs) (laughs) Out of all your books, which is your favorite? Oh, gosh. Um, That's like asking which of your three sons you love the most, right? And and there is one, you do. Just admit it, (laughs) our favorite. My mother used to say they loved us all equally. When she says that, I knew that I knew that I was not the one she loved the most. <laughs> That's code. No, I, I know we all love, we, we do love our kids, kids uniquely, but there are usually books. I mean, books is not the same as kids. So which are those that you, uh, you, you, you reflect on the most and you go, I really enjoyed writing this. Fictional Acadian autobiography. No, I'm kidding. I was like, I, I saw that at Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of on Oprah's book lists. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I think I, I've written a series of books called How to, you know, How to Read the Psalms was the first one. And so there have been How to Read the Psalms, How to Read Genesis. IVP publishes it. And probably How to Read the Psalms, um, uh, you know, uh, probably in terms of my more technical commentaries, uh, either my Nikon Ecclesiastes or. I love uh, that book. That was a good book. And my um, 
Well, in that series, the Story of God series that I was describing earlier, I did the Genesis commentary. So, um, yeah, in terms of the books that Dan and I did together, I think Cry of the Soul is my favorite. Yeah. So, nice. Do you ever stop and go, you look at Dan and you go, wow, we were in eighth grade together. Yeah. <laughs> or are we writing books? Well, How did that happen? Well, I mean, I when we were roommates at Ohio Wesleyan freshman year and uh, Dan wasn't a Christian yet, I'd just become a Christian. Apparently, I had been annoying him because he, <laughs> he said to me, he goes, well, you're a Christian. You think if you die, then you're going to go to heaven and be with God forever. I go, that's right, Dan. And he goes, well, then why don't you just kill yourself? I said, I don't think it works that way, Dan. I, <laughs> I and he goes, well, why don't you go over and hang out our our dorm window and I'll push you out. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of friend is this? I know. So, uh, so yeah. it, he was trying to, you know, mock my faith. So he was the last person in the world I thought would actually become a Christian. But about a year later, he became a Christian. And about a year after that, he gave up selling drugs. And so... <laughs> <laughs> It's called, it's called sanctification, right? <laughs> yeah, sanctification, but that's awesome hearing yeah. a story like that. So going back for a second, you talked about how you wrote a book on the, the Psalms. Um, yeah. and I, I've heard over the years, you know, Psalms teaches us how to speak to God. Yeah. Proverbs has shows us how to interact with people. Hmm. Uh it's kind of an interesting way because wisdom, it's always yeah. dealing yeah. with certain people and situations yeah. and how to do certain things, but this is a passage just because I want to I want to draw my attention because I've never seen this on a T-shirt or a coffee mug, uh, and I, I'm not reading from the NLT right here because I just grabbed the one that was nearest to me. But it said uh, Psalm 137:9. You know what verse this is? That the dash your children against. Yes, it yeah. is. Happy is he who takes your little ones and then dashes them against the rocks. Help us out here, because that is not a passage I hear too often preached. Yeah, so uh, you're raising the question of imprecations or the curses yes. of Psalms. And, uh, and early in my career, I used to teach that Christians shouldn't pray them. And now I say, yeah, Christian. Hey, let's do it. <laughs> let's, let's start now. Let's start now, Tripper. Let's start oh, doing some imprecations. But here's here's... <laughs> You know, the Psalms are, as Calvin said, a mirror of our soul, you know, and expresses every emotion yes, that yes, we feel, very true. including intense hatred and anger. And what are the imprecations but turning our anger and hatred over to God, you know? So, um, yeah, so I don't think anywhere the Psalmist prays, oh, God, give me the opportunity and the resources so I can kill this bastard. Uh, it's, rather, it's rather, oh God, please kill this bastard. <laughs> so, so, the, so the alternate is, I, and the reason why I, it was a student in actually Melbourne, Australia. I was teaching a course at the Presbyterian Seminary there on the Psalms and I gave my line about how Christians shouldn't um, pray it. And he came up to me afterwards. He goes, Tramper, with all due respect, uh, I have to disagree with you because if I couldn't pray those Psalms to God, I would have killed this guy, you know? Mm. And 
he went on to explain how he invited this person into his house when he was having hard times. Next thing you know, he was having an affair with his wife and they ran mm. off. And he goes, if I just bottled that emotion up and couldn't express it to God. And that's one of the points we make in Cry of the Soul is there's a difference between the grumbling in the wilderness and the lament psalms that express anger and disappointment because in the wilderness they're not talking to god they're complaining about god in the psalms they may be complaining about god but they're complaining about god to god to god which is different (laughs) yeah so um so again i think the idea is we can come to god express every emotion that we feel, including our anger and our hatred, and even our anger toward God. You know, read Psalm 77. Yeah. You know, C.S. Lewis once said, don't go to God with what should be in you. Go to, go to God with what is in you. I have to and, say, by the way, Reflections on the Psalms yes. is one of the worst books written on the Psalms. What? <laughs> no! I'm sorry. No! <laughs> no, so I, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, but he... You know, he he actually he's he's one who calls the uh, imprecation sub-Christian. In oh that. well, I don't agree with that. He also <laughs> he also uh, surprisingly has a misunderstanding of parallelism. He's he has a basically uh, the second colon always says the same thing as the first colon, where. A more proper understanding is that the second colon of a parallelism always furthers in some way the thought. So I, I, I get people's attention by saying it's the worst book. It's not the worst book written on the Psalms. Great <laughs> <laughs> right, man, though. I prefer Tolkien in the area of myth making. <laughs> you say you you like just knocked out one of the like Protestant saints right there. That, I mean that's. I, I think a lot of us are just jealous of C.S. Lewis because he, he 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 speaks so beautifully and powerfully and and concisely, um, and uh, and you know really is a giant of the 20th century. In oh terms yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. But going back for a second, you you mentioned. The imprecations. We yeah. we come to God with what really should be in us. How do we juxtapose that with don't grumble or the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness and they're complaining? But even in, in Philippians, where it talks about doing without grumbling, how do we do that? Because honestly, that's some of the things I struggle with. When I'm when I'm I, I get the imprecation psalms, I get trying to show my lament, my frustration, my pain, but there's times where I'm like okay, I know I'm not to grumble. I know I'm not to complain. You know, I hear Ecclesiastes, let your words be few. <laughs> he is in heaven. We're on earth. How, how do you juxtapose those two things? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that, um, you know, grumbling is a, is a problem. I mean, if you, directing it toward God is where we get our catharsis, I think, our, mm-hmm. our release. But I mean, that doesn't mean personally that we can't talk to our spouse about our difficulties or something mm-hmm. or about the fact that we're down or something like that. Um, I, I, I uh, yeah. So, 
So I don't know. It, I, the spirit of the grumbling in the wilderness is more like I've completely given up on God. You know, mm. I, I, I've given up on him because I, I don't expect that he will help. Mm. Uh, so I think it's that attitude that we've got to particularly avoid um, a kind of a turning our back on God. Rather than taking more of the John the Baptist approach. You know, if if you're the one who was to come, why am I sitting in prison because of this pagan king right now? If you're the ruler, why yeah. am I here? Because his is more of a faith, like I say, the faith seeking to understand. Yeah, he's he's bringing all of what he knows about God to the situation. Yeah, he's saying it's not making sense to me right now. Help me, rather yeah. than saying is I don't care to understand. Right, I just right. want out of this situation. Yeah. 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 And I think, well, actually, I think, you know, it's Matthew 11, I think you're referring to when he sends the two disciples to yeah. Jesus the question, are you the one or should we expect another? Um, and I think you're exactly right. Why am I in prison? Because you, the Messiah that we are expecting is somebody who's going to bring warfare against our enemies. Go back and read Daniel 7, Jesus. Go back and read Zechariah 14. And so what Jesus is basically saying through his actions to John is I am the Messiah, but I've heightened and intensified the warfare. So it's going to be directed toward the spiritual powers and authority. And those enemies are defeated, not by killing, but by dying on the cross. And what John doesn't get uh, is that um, Jesus is coming as a two part affair, you know, so I yeah. think I think most people didn't get that. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think anybody got it. Anybody? Got it. That's what Jesus starts explaining. You know that Daniel expectation, Zachariah's expectation of a future day of the Lord is ultimately fulfilled in the eschaton when Christ comes. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. How, how also do you nourish your soul? Being a scholar, I think people assume that you have this greater insight into God and you know more. I mean, you've studied it, but yet you you still need to nourish your own soul. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and we all do so imperfectly, right? Right. I'm very fortunate to have a wife, Alice, who, uh, who, um, grounds me very much. We get up every morning, we walk, we pray together, um, we talk about spiritual matters, uh, go to 
church, of course, a good Anglican church here in the area, which helps nourish my soul and uh, and uh, have a small group um, and things like that. I, you know, I don't have like a separate devotional scripture reading time because early on somebody told me something which I think is really important, which is never divorce kind of reading the scripture for your academic work from reading scripture for mm. your devotional life, but rather read, always read scripture, even when you're working on a, say, a technical article or something, read it devotionally, you know, prayerfully, mindfully, uh, mindful of how this should impact my life today. Mm. And what made you, I probably should ask this at the beginning, what made you want to study the Old Testament? Ah, yeah. Well, that's that's a good question. Uh, part of it is Ray and his exciting lectures. I went to Westminster hoping that I'd go in an academic direction and um, and but not sure what direct, what area to focus in on, whether it's New Testament, Old Testament, church history were kind of the leading contenders. And Ray just got me, as I said, very excited about the Old Testament. Then I also realized that in the classes at Westminster before me, uh, people like Andrew Lincoln, Wayne Grudem, Vern Poitras, uh, and the list go, Jim Hurley, were all going into PhDs in New Testament. I said, Hmm. Maybe somebody ought to do Old Testament. <laughs> the Old Testament's a lot longer. It's got a lot more interesting questions, I think. Uh, and uh, for me, at least. And I love studying languages. So if you go, there are different routes you go. The route I went, I, had, I, I took uh, not only Hebrew, but Aramaic and Sumerian and Akkadian and Ugaritic and a little bit of Arabic. Um, and so, so I, I love that kind of study. And so that's why I went in that direction, thinking that there would be more job openings in Old Testament than New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> but Very things. When, I, when I went into the field um, professionally, evangelical schools were, were growing there were new positions opening up. Um, not as many people were doing doctorates. I think I was among the first evangelical Protestant to do uh, <clears throat> a doctorate at Yale. Um, yeah. that I was in. Before that, most, most not all, Bruce Walke has a PhD <clears throat> from Harvard, but most went to Brandeis or Dropsy, both excellent schools, but... Um, but but not as well known as, say, Yale and Harvard or Cambridge, Oxford. Um, there are a lot of good programs out there. Now, unfortunately, for uh, the present generation, the job market is shrinking and there are a lot more candidates out there for mm. positions. And people my age, myself excluded, uh, <laughs> aren't retiring, you know, at 65, but are some summers staying into their 70s and occasionally up to 80. And they're very effective teachers, of course, but it also doesn't open up positions for the younger generation. Generation going through. 
being in, you know, now a quote unquote senior statesman and you have these younger these younger generations coming up and the culture is has definitely shifted. Yeah. Um, we're seeing obviously a uh decrease in the United States, at least from a cultural perspective and influence perspective, uh, removing the political, let's say, but just say the cultural and you're seeing it much more global. What is the advice that you give this younger generation of scholars that are coming up? Mm. I actually wrote a four-part series for Didacticos called Sage Advice, where I um, where I do that. And um on a number of different levels, but I, I, I would first of all say that um, that you know this next generation is go- is running into issues of actually finding a place in the academy. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't become scholars. But that hopefully they'll be scholar pastors and uh, and others. So. If you're thinking in the future of a typical kind of tenure track academic position, those are beginning to shrink quite radically for a whole bunch of different reasons. Uh, So be creative in terms of thinking about your professional life. Um, So, but I also say, you know, another another issue is many of our institutions are very tightly defined, so that um, so that if you um, sort of have a different view, say on the creation evolution debate, you're going to be so, so. But I tell people my experience has been just be honest with the text. Be honest with the text. Um, you know, don't adopt positions that are going to f- necessarily fit in with a particular institution, but just be faithful to the text. Partly because I've, I've, I've been very fortunate in my career and where I taught at what times of my life I've taught. Um, and, and it is important, by the way, for institutions to define themselves. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not one of these people who say we should have open theological borders at our institutions. Um, and so that's not my, my point. But my point is that we all, as biblical scholars, need to realize that our first and only loyalty is to God and to his word and to interpret it to the best of our ability, but also know what is clear and what is open to discussion. I think that's mm-hmm. an advice I'd give. You know, Protestants have rightly talked about the perspicuity of scripture, the clarity of scripture, uh, but the Westminster Confession of Faith starts its statement on perspicuity by saying, not all things are alike clear in and of themselves, but those matters pertaining to salvation are clear. And those matters that are essential to salvation are not a lot, but they are very clear. Mm-hmm. So on other issues, I think we need to be open to discussion. So do you think that the scholarship in the pastorate has become less or is it becoming stronger? You know, it's kind of hard for me to tell um, on kind of a 
global level. But I, I would have to say that in some ways, I think it probably has grown stronger. I, and I would use Tim Keller as an example. I mean, mm -hmm. Tim is such a model to many pastors and, and he is a scholar pastor, you know, preeminent in my opinion. Of course, we've been good friends since we taught at Westminster in our thirties, but I know I'm up close and personal. And so I think Tim's provided a good model of, of scholarship for the pastorate in a, in a kind of winsome way. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, there's a lot of craziness going on in the pulpit these days too. That's true. So, so it's hard to, hard to generalize. I think you might have a better sense of that. What's, what's your thinking about that? Well, it depends with mega churches. I think you've seen a, more of a pragmatic approach than anything else. But I think you're also seeing, again, the pendulum goes one way and then it goes the other. Uh, my friends that created the Center for Pastor Theologians oh, yeah. are calling for a revival yeah. of that. And uh, one of your students, former students, Kevin Van Hooser, has, has written on that. Uh, I think that there is a need of greater training going on, but at the same time, they need to be able to speak to the language of the people. And I, I think that's always the conundrum. I've, I've been in some churches where they were great for reformed theology, and it was awesome what they preached on, but I looked around the room and everyone looked exactly alike. There wasn't any socioeconomic diversity, and there was in the community. There wasn't any ethnic diversity, and there was in the community. My question is, is does your church reflect your community, and do you speak in the language of your people? Yeah. Not, not to say you don't deny theological concepts, because as uh, again, your former student talks about doctrine is the, the drama of doctrine, yeah. that performance act. And I think we have to learn how to perform, and I mean perform as in live out the gospel on the stage of the world in front of the people that we interact with uh, every day, as my friend Tom Mercer says, our oikos, what's our, our household that we, the you know, eight to 15 people that we live life in front of all the time. Yeah. So, so that would be my, my take on it. Um, and I have, and what I love about what I do is I have a lot of friends having been a pastor, been a pastor, but most of my experience is also, I mean, I'm in the academic world. So I, I get to bridge both and uh, try to get the best of both. Cause I think they're both necessary. Um, yeah. But I, I do, I am cause concern because in speaking with some folks at Van, uh, uh, Vanderblumen, which is the, uh, the the placement firm, search firm for a lot of mega churches, they mm -hmm. said that 50% of their hires are non-seminary or Bible trained. Uh, okay. And yeah. that, that, that is alarming to me Yeah, um, because people are looking for CEOs and personalities, yeah, personalities. Rather, rather than expositors. And that does make me quite nervous, but uh, I hope to see the revival of the, the smaller church uh, uh, a bit, not to say the mega churches are all bad. I think your friend Tim Keller said it well. He said, I, I don't see the, the eradication of mega churches because we always need them. They can do certain things a smaller church can, but I think churches that are in that 500 range are the churches of the future that are going to be multi-ethnic. Hmm. Um, but who knows right now in our political and social climate in the United States, 
Um, and our friends that are overseas are dealing with a whole host of other factors and their specific cultures and worlds in which they live in and move and, and training, I think, would be much more desirable for them. But I'm even seeing a growing movement there within India. There's uh, a greater emphasis on reform theology and the same within Africa. So I, I find that more on the higher academic side uh, of things. And, and I, I find that uh, it's exciting to me that some are responding to that, which I, I hadn't seen that previously. So those are some of my thoughts on it. I could be way off. My friend Todd Johnson would know more than uh, you or I. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I call him the Google of global Christianity. It's Todd, yeah. what's going on in Malaysia? He knows. Yeah. What's going yeah. on with Baptists in Sri Lanka? He knows. Yeah. Uh, well, over the years, I've had lots of wonderful Korean students. So I yes, and, and Korea's gone through maybe even a little bit ahead of the U.S. in terms of, you know, the rapid growth of mega churches and then a series of issues that arise in those mega churches. And right. so there's a movement within Korea now of working for what some call New Testament church model, you know, smaller churches mm -hmm. with more accountable, less authoritarian pastor types so it's interesting for yeah. me from korea because it's much more of an authoritarian right, right, culture right 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 but a lot of those authority figures ended up abusing their authority right in ways that are leading some to question uh whether that's the right leadership model um for for korea well i i think that's also what's going on here i was talking to my friend daniel yang who serves on our advisory team he is the director of the send institute at uh, the Billy Graham Center and mm. does a podcast with Ed Stetzer. And uh, he was just lamenting and not lamenting, but telling me about different church movements that are going on. And you're seeing a lot more of the house church into a smaller church uh, movement, more decentralized yeah. as time goes on. And especially as the culture shifts, it seems like people are moving away from an establishment or institutional um, Christianity, which again is good and bad. I mean, it's Protestants. I mean, we were part of that first movement away from institution, and we have all these splinter groups now, yeah, which isn't always yeah. a good thing. And you can hear some of our Catholic friends saying, well, I told you so. Yeah, right. <laughs> we told you this was going to happen. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's so many different pieces that are happening to it. But hey, I just want to say how much I enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you so much. Travis, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And how can people uh, learn more? I mean, your books are out there. They're easy to find on Amazon. But yeah. what, you said you got a new book coming out on Revelation? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, coming out in April with Kriegel. Um, it's actually a commentary, but it emphasizes bringing out the Old Testament background. My thesis is the book of Revelation, yeah, is strange to us. That's because we don't understand the imagery that's coming from the Old Testament <laughs> and the Greco-Roman uh, environment it's in. So, so um, yeah, so that's coming out. And then um, I just finished participating in a five books thing on Christ in the Old Testament that uh, Zondervan's gonna bring out in the fall and a bunch of other smaller things like the uh, for Cambridge and Oxford are both doing either Cambridge Companions, Oxford Handbooks. So I've written chapters for the Oxford Handbook on Wisdom, the Cambridge Companion on Wisdom, and the Cambridge Companion on Narrative. So, wow. How many uh, books have you written? 
Uh, I don't keep count, and of course, a number are co-authored, like with Dan or Ray Dillard, um, but it's somewhere around 35. Um, wow. Yeah, so... By the way, uh, speaking of the global church, a number of my books have been translated in other languages, but I don't think I've been as excited as the most recent translation of Cry of the Soul, the book we were talking about earlier in Farsi. Oh. Yeah, so that was was exciting to see. I just got my copy about a month ago. So (laughs) can you read Farsi? No, I can't read. I'm, I'm assuming. I'm assuming. I can't read it. Either. That's one of those things. Like I, I was doing. You're only as good as your translator, right? I mean, oh. I, I, and I'm sure you've preached with translators, and I have too. And I remember preaching at a Russian church actually in yeah. uh, in Connecticut, uh, in Massachusetts. And I got done with a translator and I said, how'd it go? And he goes, well, there were two sermons. There was mine and there, there was yours and there was mine. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. got halfway through and I got lost and I started uh-huh. preaching my own. So I, I, my, one of my favorite translation stories is when I showed up at a Korean seminary where I had a former student who I failed. <laughs> translating for me and i go this can't be good so i get up and do my first line you know very animated and and i hear this that <sighs> follow then i go da, 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 da. <sighs> but <laughs> but once i was uh speaking in tel aviv to both uh to a Christian Jewish audience, and there were some new Russian immigrants there who didn't know Hebrew. So I got translated first into Hebrew, and then the Russian translator didn't know English, so translated from... (laughs) Did you walk through it with them ahead of time or no? Did you just have to go on the fly? I had to go on the fly. I, I learned after my my stake with the Russians that after that I sat down and I wanted to know who my translator was because I, I was in India and and the the founder would pick a translator right before you'd walk up on the pul- and it was like it was like a baseball coach his arm up like I need the right-handed reliever yeah. and I and I remember going I walked up to him ahead of time and I said you can't do that to me I have to know who the translator is yeah yeah so that I can walk through this with him ahead of time because if because illustrations don't, again the translation yeah. thing you were talking about right they don't always they don't always translate. And so yeah. I would have to scrap illustrations because it was very American or Western. Right, right. It didn't make sense to the Indian mind. Well, you know, the hardest I find is not with a translator, but if I'm speaking in Canada or especially Australia, all of a sudden I'll realize, yeah. hey, yeah, you're not American. Oh, yeah. And uh, this is not a good illustration and that one's really difficult because you know if someone's speaking a different language that may not translate or if it's different culture but someone who's at least speaking english you would think so and i've had that i was speaking in northern ireland where you have to walk up to the pulpit and you're you're talking to everybody and i learned real quick that i was not in a land where they understood everything i said i was young and i thought how am i going to get out of this (laughs) This Yeah. yeah Those, but that's what I love about the word of God. It's what I love about the Christian life for these kind of interactions where you're trying to learn terms. And yet God still 
works. That's right. Broken yeah. people and, yeah. and broken words. That's what I, I love about it. Anyway, thank you again so much for coming on the show. It was a delight to have you. Thank you, Travis. It's great. One of the things that I love about what I do is I get the opportunity to meet the men and women who create much of the content that we take in, that pastors, that scholars, that teachers go to in order to educate us about the faith that we might be able to go deeper. And it's not just delving into the material, which is awesome, but it's getting to know them personally to know that they are men and women just like us. They live their lives just like we do, one day at a time. They're dealing with struggles just like we do. I love that because I love watching God touch their life and use them in the way that he does. And he can use you. That's how he does with all of us, right? How often do we feel that God can't use us? Or that something's too big or too academic. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for the academics that are out there. And while I may never learn Akkadian or Arabic, I'm grateful for guys like him who can learn it and then help me understand it so that I might be able to know the God of the Bible better and then apply that truth to my life that I might then go and water my world for the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. We want to help you water your world where you are. If this episode has helped you, would you consider partnering with us? We're looking for watering partners to help this ministry grow. We are delighted and grateful to all of those who have partnered with us in such a short period of time. And we are delighted to say that we are one third of our way there. With your help, we can get that remaining two thirds. If God has used this episode to grow your faith, then please partner with us. Go online to apolloswater.org and click the Support Us button in the upper right-hand corner. Click that, and you will find many suggested amounts. Pick the one that is right for you, or simply write in the amount and surprise us. We want to give all glory to God from everything that has come from this podcast. We are grateful that God is using us to impact lives around the world. And we are supremely grateful for him to allow us to be a part of that. We give all glory to God from all that has come from this podcast. We are grateful that God has seen fit to use us to impact lives around the world. May he receive all praise, honor, and glory. We've been hearing stories from listeners how God has used an episode or a conversation to challenge them and equip them to share their faith better, to interact with those from different backgrounds, from different religions, in order to reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ. We'd love to have more people grow from connecting with Apollos Watered. If you've been impacted while listening to a podcast, please do us a favor. Screenshot that episode, text it to a friend, share it on your stories, or simply share it from your podcast platform. Subscribing and leaving a review also puts it out there to more people. And here's the deal. The more you rate, the more difference it makes. I wrote a review for something a few weeks back on Google, and I got an email from Google that said my rating was making a difference as people were reading it to determine whether they were going to purchase the product I reviewed. And it's true for you. 
the more you review us, the more people will find it and be able to grow because of it. And don't forget, we have content on Instagram, Facebook, and our website that's shareable. Together, let's leave a trickle of truth and encouragement around the world and watch people grow. And I want to invite you back for next week as I talk to KJ Johnson on our Watering Wednesday episode where we discuss the state of the Western Evangelical Church. And in our deep conversations, we have Brett McCracken of the Gospel Coalition and author of The Wisdom Pyramid as we discuss how to feed your soul in a post-truth world. Much thanks to the Apollos Water team of Kevin, Melissa, Donovan, Eliana, Rebecca, and Audrey. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. Thank you.